0: listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website sojournmontrose.org. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Reed. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Montrose, if I haven't met you yet. Um, I'd love that opportunity, but want to welcome you to our congregation. Um, And as Nick said at the beginning, if you have been coming around for a while or this is your first Sunday, like we want you to feel welcome and know that you're welcome here and we'd love to connect you with one of our communities, which we call Neighborhood Parishes. So come find us in the map in the hallway at the conclusion of the gathering and we would love to start a conversation about what it it might look like to to visit one of those communities this week Um, and, and we'd love to help you connect in that way. Um, and as you just heard, and maybe you see behind me on the screen, um, we, are, uh, we have just finished up one sermon series called Resurrected Life, where we're looking at the implications of Christ's resurrection on our daily lives, and we are um, not yet have we started our next sermon series, which goes through 1 Thessalonians, that that letter that Paul wrote. Um, And so for this Sunday and next Sunday, we're looking at two events that happen to be in the Christian calendar, the Ascension and then Pentecost. So this is Ascension Sunday, and it's the time where the church remembers that Christ in a resurrected body, Jesus appeared to many, he proclaimed that he was resurrected and alive, and and he was sending the Holy Spirit, which is what we celebrate at, at Pentecost Sunday. But after he proclaims all this, he He ascends, he goes up to heaven and sits on a throne. And so this morning we're going to talk less about the event of the ascension and more about the implications of where Jesus ascended to, which is that throne. And you heard that in the psalm that Sam just read. Um, And so all that said, let me pray for our time this morning and we will uh, talk about this together. Lord, I pray that we would... um, that we would meditate just for a moment on your word in Psalm 46, verse 10, which says, um, Be still and know I am God. Lord, in our stillness, we acknowledge that you are God and that you are King, and we ask you by your word to not only speak to us in truth, but to change us by your truth through your Holy Spirit. You've told us you will do these things, and as we read in the psalm, your decrees are trustworthy. You are trustworthy. You do what you said as we sang together in the psalm promises that you do just what you said. Um, therefore, we can rest in your goodness, in your monarchy. Lord, we love you as king. We love you as savior and lord and friend. We pray this in your name. Amen. Um, show of hands, did anybody get up early to watch the coronation a couple weeks ago? Nobody start at 4 a.m. I thought maybe somebody did. Well, I was awake um, because I have very young children, not because I chose to be awake. And my daughter, Maggie, loves princesses. So I asked her, would you like to see a real-life princess? And so we turned on the coronation. It was live streaming on YouTube. And uh, she lost interest about a minute into it. It was, it was pretty boring. Um, but I'm not here to dunk on the crown. I'm here to kind of unpack this and use this illustration. I mean, I found it admittedly quite moving. I found it quite beautiful. There, there were some beautiful parts of the coronation of Charles that were very um, solidly scriptural and pointed to Christ as king, and I thought that was all beautiful. However, my favorite part I thought was was a funny part. Um, they, they put these banners up in order that, that King Charles would go behind the banners and not be seen, and he unclothes himself, and then he gets redressed as king. And so the first thing they dress him in is just this really simple white shirt. It's like a white-collared shirt, and they say, uh, there's commentators. It's like a sporting event. Um, there's commentators that say, um, the King Charles will now put on the the white shirt of simplicity, which um, which... Which shows that the king has divested in vanity before God and country. It's like, oh, that's quite that's quite moving. That's that's beautiful. And then um, they put on a full length coat of gold called the super tunic, the imperial mantle of gold over the super tunic. They put on a royal girdle with a coronation sword belt in which the sword of offering was then sheathed. Uh, they put on two white leather gloves to symbolize purity, and with which he can hold the royal scepters, both of gold, um, and then this gold orb, which I can't really recall what it does, and then this royal golden stole of silk goes on. And by the time poor Charles was upon his crown placed Saint Edward, or his head placed Saint Edward's crown, uh, he could barely stand. They were saying something like it's 35 to 50 pounds of clothing on the king at this point. And somewhere all below all of that was the simple white shirt of simplicity. And below that shirt, just a guy. Um, And so I've kind of chewed on this, thought it was funny. But you see, modern Americans, we have this problem with theology regarding the monarch, right? I, I mean, first... We have since our inception, since the revolution, always believed that kings and governments should not mix. That one man is never um, good enough to be trusted to rule everything. Um, And and second, so that's a historic issue Americans have had with the monarchy. The second is the current issue, which is we just don't see the point. The monarchy to us um, looks like this kind of outdated, powerless, expensive symbol. so the monarchy for us just kind of graces the tabloids and we're like, yeah, they they still do that over there. And and Abby, correct me if I'm wrong, um for the UK, it doesn't seem to they don't seem to really have a great picture of the monarchy either. For my for my UK friends, the Queen and now King have just kind of There's no power under the crown, it's all in kind of the government, and the crown is just this symbolic uniting agent for the kingdom, but it seems to be more divisive than it is uniting that you guys even have a crown. Um, And it's far from affecting their daily lives that there's a monarchy, right, other than a higher tax rate probably to afford the different castles and cars and things like that. And I think these issues contribute to a dilemma that's not new. It's a biblical dilemma in Jesus' time, and it's a dilemma for us, that we don't know what to do with Jesus as king. And if you're a Christian in the room, um, I'm not saying that you don't believe that Jesus is king. I would wager that if I asked you, do you think Jesus is king? You would say, yes, I believe Jesus is king. Um, I'm saying we believe that, but, but we don't exactly know how to live like it's true. Every day, um, and so what? What does Scripture say about Jesus as King? Well, well, Psalm ninety-three tells us what we should believe as uh, as it pertains to King Jesus. Psalm ninety-three describes the reign of God in Christ. It says this: The Lord reigns; He is robed in majesty. He is robed; He has put on the strength as His belt. Yes, the world is established; it shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old; you are everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice, the floods lift up their roaring, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty, your decrees are trustworthy, holiness holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. It's the word of the Lord. Three places I want us to go um, as we consider Christ our King, Um, and I was able to find three R's, so if you're taking notes or you were raised Baptist, you'll be comfortable here. First, remember Christ our King. Second, rest in Christ our King. And third, rejoice in Christ our King. Remember, rest in, rejoice in. First, let's start by remembering Christ our King, and we'll start in the Old Testament. You see, The idea of a leader of the people of God is not foreign to the Bible. In Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament, the people of God did not have a king, but they had a father named Abraham, and Abraham was chosen to be the father of the nation of Israel, the leader of the people of Israel, and Abraham would be the father of this nation that God told him would bless the other nations. So Abraham was meant to instate a nation that's purpose was to mediate God's covenant blessings to the world. Um as Abraham's family grew, we know that in the historical account they were captured and enslaved in Egypt and therefore unable to accomplish this task of mediating God's covenant blessing. Um, but as they are enslaved in Egypt, a new leader emerges. God chooses a new leader named Moses, who's not a king, but a leader, and they were delivered and given the law in order to once again mediate God's blessing. So Moses leads them to freedom, and in that freedom, God gives them the law, not so they would be in bondage to the law, but so that the nations would be blessed through the laws of the nation of Israel. And again, they don't immediately elect a king. In fact, they 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 kind of deny God's law, right? If you know the story, they fashioned a golden calf to worship um, instead of worshiping Yahweh, the God who saved them. And so they are um, barred from entering the promised land for a time. But but we know that a king was part of the plan. This is what the law that Moses is given in Deuteronomy chapter 17, it says this in verse 13, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then you will say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And skipping to verse 19, it says, And it shall be with him that he shall read the law all the days of his life, and he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all of the law. So God promises that, yes, you can have a king. You will have a king when you enter the promised land. And not only will he know and love the law, he will keep all of it. Is there any king in Israel's history that is able to keep all of the law? Well, we'll find that the Old Testament rolls on. The nation of Israel continually fails at the task of mediating God's covenant blessing to the nations. They, they, before doing a monarchy, they instate this judge system where there is a judge who rules over the people and helps figure out what should be doing. But this judge system becomes very corrupt and ultimately fails. And once a kingdom is established, there's just a series of unrighteous kings until David comes. And David is this chosen king of Israel who seems to fulfill the law of Deuteronomy, right? He seems like he loves the law. He knows the law. He sings of the law. He prays of the law. And he seems like he keeps all of the law. And he does for a time. And in that time, he mediates God's blessing to people. But we know what happens with David. He does not do that continually all of his days. Instead, he commits adultery and murder. So David fails. And what happens eventually is there's this lineage of failure and inability to mediate God's covenant blessing. And then Israel ends up in exile. They end up again being ruled over by other nations with other kings. And this is when the prophet Israel begins to record prophecy of a new king that is coming for the people of Israel. And it's the same king that really was promised of old, the same leader who was promised of old. And uh, he says this in chapter 1, verse 21. This is how Isaiah starts recording the exilic prophecy prophecies of Jesus, he says this, how the faithful city, speaking of the nation of Israel, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her now has murderers. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, but, and the widow's cause does not come to them. But then turning at the end, a few verses later, verse 26, he says, but, but I, God, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called a city or a nation of righteousness and a faithful city. So what I want you to see through this brief overview is that at the heart of the Old Testament is the expectation that God will send a unique king in the lineage of David, and this king would bring God's blessing through a people to the nations. That's the heart of the Old Testament is that there's a unique king coming to mediate God's blessing to his people and through his people to the nations. So when Jesus comes, many rightfully believe that he is this promised king. He continually tells people that his kingdom has come, right? The the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus says it over and over and over again, especially in the, the gospel of Mark. And he tells them that the kingdom will be like, be unlike any of the kingdoms of earth. And he tells them, in fact, that every king will bow down to the true king. He tells them that the kingdom will be inaugurated through his own suffering. And his kingdom people will be purchased by his own blood. And they don't really understand that. So much so that they, the disciples, his closest friends and followers, think that they, the cause has failed at Jesus' crucifixion. Right? But we know it comes to pass that Jesus, although he did nothing wrong, is mocked as a false false and blasphemous king. He is crowned not with a royal jewel-filled crown, but a crown of thorns. He is robed not with the stole of gold, but of, uh, of whips and blood. He is hung on a cross, not enthroned in a royal chair. And the words, Jesus, of Nazarene, Jesus the Nazarene, king of the Jews, is scribbled across and above his head as he dies in order to mock him. As sad as these things are, as as hard as they are for the people of God to reflect on them, we know that these things must have happened in order for Jesus to come into his kingdom. Jesus did not come to earth as fully God and fully man to see what being human was like. He not, did not come to tour the earth for a little bit. He did not come to give us a list of morals to follow. He came instead to a, atone for sin and establish his kingdom. So how does he atone for sin? He lives a perfect life, which is applied to those who are in his kingdom, and he pays an unjust death as penalty for the payment of our sin. And not only is perfect life applied to us, not only is the death we deserve paid for, but also he rose from the dead on the third day, enabling us to once again one day rise in a body glorified like Jesus' glorified body. It's in that glorified body that Jesus says these words go, therefore, all authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. In other words, he says, I am king. I am king. It's in this body that he sends his people to seek and save the lost. In other words, he sends the people of his kingdom to mediate the blessings of God to the nations. It's in this body that Christ goes into the heavens as he ascends, and it's in this body that God now, in Jesus, reigns on a throne, robed in majesty with a belt of strength around them. So first, we remember the promised king and fulfilled kingdom of Jesus that has come. Think back to the psalm, the Lord reigns robed in majesty with a belt of strength. This throne was established of old and is everlasting. So first we remember, and now that we've remembered how and why Jesus is king, we can rest as members of his kingdom. Why can we rest in the kingdom of God? Well, first of all, All creation is in subject or submission to the king, right? Like, let's read these verses in the psalm. It says, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring, mightier than the thunders of the waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. So on one level, all of this, all of creation is under the sovereignty of God. All nature, all creation and power and authority is under God. Christ's rule under the king's rule on a second level particularly the water the sea and waves um, in Hebrew poetry these things often communicate chaos like we're going to get into this because we're, we're going through the book of Jonah a little bit later this year and um, water for us is meant to symbolize uh, especially for the Israelites in the ancient Israelite culture like chaos um, think of Jesus calming the storm and walking on water, right? That was meant to communicate something more than just the event and miracle. it's it's to it's it's pointing to the psalm that Christ is Lord over not only nature but chaos. So one layer is that God is sovereign over all of creation. And the second layer is that he is sovereign over the chaos that that creation has borne. And I think, doesn't it feel like chaos? is on the throne in our society, like thinking of political discourse or all the shootings that we experience or the mental health crisis or social media and substance abuse or or nature itself. Like To me, if I am not daily going to the word of God and being reminded of what is trustworthy, it feels like chaos is on the throne, not Jesus. The chaotic forces... Of the world are frenzied and foamed up, as Spurgeon says. But in the end, this frenzy and foaming of the chaos of the world just, just crashes upon the rock of the everlasting throne of old, the throne of Jesus. Nothing can break the throne of Christ. It's everlasting, it's mighty, He is mighty. Interestingly, the, the Word of God tells us that in His kingship, this chaos will persist. For a little while, in this time that we are in right now, Jesus is no less king, we are told. He's, he's king, fully, fully given authority and power, all authority in heaven and earth are given to him, and yet we are supposed to persist in the chaos and lean on him instead. And um, it, it kind of makes sense, right? The chaos is because there are these two conflicting kingdoms currently on earth, this defeated kingdom, of Satan and evil, mixing with the kingdom of righteousness that is coming to bear on earth. So chaos is the natural result. But we know that after the fullness of time has passed, this chaos frenzy that's been stirred up by sin and results in death will cease when Christ returns. And he said he will return. And this psalm tells us that he is trustworthy so we rest in his sovereignty over creation and and the psalm ends with this appeal to both god's holiness and his trustworthiness it says your decrees are very trustworthy holiness befits your house o lord forevermore so if jesus is king then A, he is sinless, he is holy, his house is unspotted with holiness, and therefore, it's trustworthy. And if he's trustworthy, then the things that he said about you as God's kingdom people are absolutely true. our, Our king has said that we are forgiven. Our king has said that his perfect life is applied to us. Our king has said that his death paid for your sin. Our king has said that he sits on a throne in a risen body. Our king has told us that we are his bride, the church. Our king has told us that we will prevail, that we'll be victorious over the gates of hell. Our king has told us that we will be given the very spirit of God from on high. Our king has told us that when we die, we will rise again and live with him. Our king is trustworthy, so we rest in his sovereignty and his trustworthiness. Jesus is, unlike the crowns of earth, right? Jesus is not just a symbol of unity. He's not just a symbol of morality. He's not powerless. He's sovereign. He's holy without spot of corruption. All authority is his. What he says comes to pass. His decrees are trustworthy. And this is, this is important because it's uh, having a savior that is strong, is something that we can rest in. Um, a giant of a theologian, uh, Tim Keller, passed away on Friday of last week, um, and, and he passed into the arms of Jesus, his king, and he, uh, he gives us a really helpful, or he's given this really helpful illustration of what it means to have a strong king as savior. He says, um, okay, imagine you're falling off a cliff, and um, there's a small, weak branch at the edge of that, cri- that, that cliff, Um, it doesn't matter how much faith you have in that branch to save you. Um, You could have 100% confidence that that branch will save you, but you're falling off the cliff, and when you grab the weak branch, it will rip out of the dirt and you'll fall to your death. Opposite of that is this. You're falling off a cliff to your death, and there's a very strong branch. It doesn't matter how much faith you have in that branch. As long as you have enough faith to reach out and grab it, the strong branch will save you. So the the object of our faith is very strong, which saves us. Not our faith that saves us. Does that make sense? You only need enough faith. And and I would wager that the type of faith, if you're falling to your death to reach out and grab a branch, the only faith that you need there is an awareness that you're falling to your death. Your body will take over and grab the strong branch of Christ when you have an awareness that without grabbing onto something, you will die. That's what, that's what happens when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. We, we become the, this growing realization that we're falling to our death, and it doesn't matter if, if our faith in the branch that is Christ, the strong, true branch that will not move, doesn't matter if we have a, a sliver of faith in that or 100% confidence. If we grab him, he will save us. What a great illustration, and what a great reason to rest in the strong king that is Jesus. I don't know about you, but I I can't, um, if Jesus is just a good moral teacher, that is not something strong to grab onto when I become aware of my impending death. If if morality is the thing I'm going to try and grab onto, I think y'all know, and I know very well, that I will fail. I will fall. So we need a strong branch to grab onto, a strong king. And with that truth, as we remember who Jesus is as king and we rest in the strong king that he is, that turns to the third movement, which is rejoicing in Christ our king. We can worship the reigning and risen king. We can give to him. We can serve him. We can love him. We can spend time with him because he wants to spend time with us. We should worship the risen king and rejoice in the truth of our salvation through the risen king. And I'd I'd wager that how well we are doing at rejoicing in the fact that Jesus is king on the throne, that fact will correlate with how well we are doing at inviting others into his kingdom. Right, like if I'm really rejoicing in my Lord and Savior and King, and I believe that being part of his kingdom is unlike anything else on the planet, it's a kingdom of love and righteousness and justice, and any who would simply reach out to him as king will be saved and invited into his kingdom. If I'm rejoicing in that fact, then I will surely invite others into that kingdom. Come, let me me tell you about this king who rose from the dead. Come, let me tell you about his kingdom. Come, let me tell you about the cost that he paid to allow us to have relationship with him, the king. Let me tell you how you were invited to be part of his kingdom. And because Tim Keller is worthy of double honor, here's another Keller quote. The gospel is not about choosing which advice to follow. It's about being called to follow a king. Not just someone with the power and authority to tell you what needs to be done, but someone with the power and authority to do what needs to be done and then offer it to you as good news. So we have a king that doesn't just say, here's how to be good. Here's a good way to live. We have a king that says, I will do that on your behalf. That's real power and authority. At the end of the day, I said this before, but at the end of the day, there are these two kingdoms on earth, and they can't coexist it's like the Harry Potter, like the, what is the prophecy of like neither can live while the other remains or something. It's that, that thing. Like the kingdom of Satan, of evil, of sin, of darkness and death cannot coexist with the kingdom of Jesus, of light, of purity, of authority, of forgiveness, of grace, of justice, of holiness, of righteousness. There's a time coming where one kingdom will end and the other will fully envelop the earth and heaven And until then, we have a battle, right? It's a spiritual battle. We might not be able to see all of it, but we certainly experience it in the chaos of our world. It's because the two kingdoms are battling, but one has won. It's when Christ rose from the dead, it was the death blow, and now there's just little chaos swirling as the other one diminishes. The good king decreed perfection, and then in all his power and glory and humility, he accomplished perfection on our behalf. So those who believe in this king are instantly saved in his kingdom. You don't have to wait for a green card and then all the immigration paperwork to come to fruition. It's an instant immigration, an instant citizenship into the kingdom of God so long as you reach out and grab the strong branch that is Christ. And our good king invites us to tell others that they can be part of this kingdom. They can switch sides, even if they don't know that they're part of the wrong kingdom. As much as we rejoice in our good king Jesus, we will invite others to be part of the kingdom. And see, I think as we conclude this morning, like if we spend more time remembering, resting in and rejoicing in Christ as our king, then our individual and collective, our desire for earthly political power, for money, for fame, for prestige, for status, the more we spend time remembering, resting, and rejoicing in Christ as king, the, the more those things will just diminish. Like We will be much more concerned with serving the one who is actually king, resting in the one whose kingdom will have no end and is victorious, and inviting the lost to change their citizenship, to give up the cycle of failure and, and disappointment and enter into the kingdom of rest. Think back to Luke 24 on the Emmaus Road, the risen Jesus appears to the disciples and they, they, it says they are very sad. And they're sad because they misunderstood the kingdom. And I think the church today, us included, myself included, we misunderstand the kingdom. They said, well, we thought Jesus was coming to lead Jerusalem and Israel to, to a kingdom. We thought he was going to be the one that would redeem Israel and have a powerful kingdom on earth. And the reality is it was so much bigger than that. The church makes the same mistake. We think political power is the goal of the church, but that's so short-sighted. Jesus isn't primarily concerned with the next election. He's, he's not unconcerned with the next election, but he's primarily concerned with his global, universal, eternal kingdom being established and bringing itself to bear on earth. He's concerned with having authority over all things. He's concerned with establishing a global kingdom of justice and righteousness that never fades. So Christ on the throne will make us less hungry for earthly power and more content with what with that which we feel fair ugh. it will make us less hungry for earthly power and more content with that which we fail to see is better cosmic eternal and unchanging power through the holy spirit power that that no man will conquer power that no demon will conquer And through this power, the church will will prevail against the gates of hell itself as we follow our king. That type of power, the power to invite people into the kingdom of love and righteousness and holiness and justice is what we have. So I would be concerned with lesser power and fool ourselves to think that power on earth is more important than the power of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned these these two kingdoms and the fact that they won't coexist. There's a time coming, the return of the king, if you will, where the kingdom of darkness will be fully and finally defeated. And until that day, chaos feels so real because it is so real. The kingdoms are trying to mix, but oil and water don't mix, darkness and light don't mix. We remember our king and our kingdom. We rest in the accomplished work of our king and we rejoice in the king and invite others to bow at his throne in worship and joy. So sojourn, remember that Christ is your king. Rest. You've been saved into the strong kingdom of Christ. We've been forgiven and placed at the table of the one who is unshakable. And rejoice. You've been saved to follow a good king, a king that is no mere symbol or mere, mere teacher. We have been invited to invite others to follow this one. Revelation 19 calls him the word of God. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, faithful and true. It tells us he's wearing a robe of pure white, but it's dipped in blood. The faithful and true king of kings and Lord of lords will return. Let's pray.